All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll once again open up His Word. Lord, as we come now before the throne of grace with boldness, with confidence that You hear us in the name of Your Son, trusting that our worship is acceptable to You because it is offered up through Christ, where we come with joy, we come with thanksgiving into Your courts, we come into Your presence with praise, and we lift up Your great and majestic name, the name of our God, the name that is exalted above all the earth, above heaven and earth. <clears throat> Lord, the nations gather to worship their gods throughout the week. We know their gods are non-existing entities, but our God is the true God, a God who can hear from heaven, a God who can answer, a God who can save and destroy, a God who is exalted on high, and we worship You. We worship You at Your footstool. We gather before You as a people who are naturally unclean, left to our own selves, to our own devices. None of us would have loved You. We know Your Word tells us that none seek for God. None seek for God. That's why it's an amazing thing when people are seeking for God because the only way anyone can seek for God is if you seek for them first. If you open their hearts or change their wills and enable them to seek after You by grace. So we're thankful that this morning us being gathered here to seek Your face is a wonderful testament to Your grace in our lives and in our hearts. I'm thankful for the people that make up this congregation. Lord, you know in my own heart what a joy it is to be a shepherd of this little flock and what a joy it is to lead these people in worship and worship with them. These are the people who bring my heart joy. Paul said that of the Corinthians. They're supposed to be the ones who bring him joy. I feel that way about this wonderful flock and I'm thankful that you have performed such a work of grace here in Syracuse, New York. Thankful that there are people here who love Christ, who worship Christ. We know the kingdom began in Palestine as a small group of followers, just a few men and women coming after Jesus, and now here we are on the other side of the earth worshiping Christ. What an amazing reality. And we thank you for the power of the gospel. We thank you for the power of your grace. Grace that's not only saved us, but grace that has made us ministers of the Gospel, ministers of reconciliation. You've called us out of darkness into Your marvelous light that we might proclaim Your excellencies. We are saved to proclaim. We have been indwelt by the Spirit to be empowered by Him to be witnesses for Christ. And as Paul said, who is adequate for these things? We're an aroma, a fragrance of Christ everywhere we go, either of life to life or death to death. Those who come into our presence and hear the Gospel from us and reject it, it solidifies their death and damnation. But for those who come and hear Christ and hear the Gospel and respond in faith, it brings life and salvation. Lord, who in the world is sufficient for these things? We have this treasure of the Gospel in clay pots, jars of clay, in this little frail body. Lord, and not many of us were noble or mighty when You called us, and yet You use us to impact the world for the Kingdom of God. And who is sufficient for this? We know, as Paul goes on to say, our adequacy comes from God. Our sufficiency comes from You. And we thank You for that, Lord. And now as we open up Your Word this morning, 
continue to work our way through this book we've been studying for several months now. We pray that you would continue to allow it to hit our hearts and minds in fresh ways under the power and influence and illumination of the Spirit. We pray that the anointing that we have from you, the Holy One, the Spirit of God, that He would teach us all things, lead us into all truth, and sanctify our hearts that we might become more and more like our Savior. And we pray that you would do these things for His glory. Amen. Alright, well once again we're in the book of 1 John, chapter 3. 1 John, chapter 3. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. And this morning we come to a passage that is verses 11 through 18. 1 John, chapter 3, verses 11 through 18. And we just continue to make our way verse by verse, word by word through John's letter. John is, as you know, still driving home the theme of Christian assurance. Christian assurance, that's what the letter's about, assurance. John wants his readers to have confidence in their salvation, to know that they have eternal life. The problem is that there were false teachers in Asia Minor who were threatening that assurance. False teachers who were threatening their confidence in their salvation. John wrote this letter to refute these proto-gnostics, these false teachers, these heretics, who according to chapter 2 verse 26 was trying to deceive them, trying to lead them astray. These false teachers had essentially invented their own version of Christianity. They had denied the fundamentals of the faith. They started out in the church. They left the church. They upset the faithful and now they were attempting to deceive them with error. 1 John 2.19 says they went out from us because they were not really of us. They started there. That's where many false teachers begin. They begin in the church only later to depart from it and deceive those within it. So John, very disturbed about this, John writes a letter to these believers of Asia Minor, several churches there, and he writes it as a series of tests by which we can distinguish between true Christianity and counterfeit Christianity. A series of tests by which you can distinguish between a true believer and a false believer. And these tests have stood the test of time. These tests are still relevant today. You can measure just about any cult, any professing group of Christians against this book, against these tests, and determine if they are authentic or not. And that's John's concern. John wants his readers to be confident that they have the truth and that they have eternal life. And John is just relentless in this. We understand that. We've been working through the letter. Perhaps you have thought, Jamie just keeps saying the same things over and over again. And that's right, because John just keeps saying the same things over and over again. He doesn't seem to let up very often. He goes through these tests repeatedly, each time in new and fresh ways with greater depth and greater clarity to drive home these essential truths. And there are three tests, you already know this, there are three tests that John presents repeatedly that will give a believer, if he passes those tests, real, substantial assurance of his salvation. Those three tests are the doctrinal test, the moral test, and the social test. Doctrinal, moral, and social. A Christian is someone who believes the truth about Christ and the gospel, and then loves God and His people, and demonstrates that love through obedience to God's commandments. That's a litmus test for true Christianity. So there's the doctrinal test, the moral test, and the social test. 
We've been considering the moral test for several weeks now. But now, in verses 11 to 18, John transitions from the moral test to the social test. The relational test. The test of love. Let me read the passage to you. 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 11. John says, For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one, and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil, and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life, because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods, and sees his brother in need, and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. From reading this passage, it should be obvious what the theme is. The theme here is love. Love. John's theme is Christian love. The word love is used six times here in these eight verses. It's also used back in verse 10. Verse 10 was kind of the key to the last passage, verses 4 to 10. But it's also the key transition to the next passage, verses 11 to 18. Verse 10 basically kind of serves as a link. It links these two texts together. In verse 10, John says this, By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. Here's the transition. Nor the one who does not love his brother. John's theme in verses 4 to 10 is that righteousness is the mark of a true believer. His theme here in verses 11 through 18 is that love is the mark of a true believer. And they really go together. You can't separate them. Love and righteousness go together. They are inextricably linked. The one who does what is right, the one who practices righteousness, is the one who loves his brother. You see, in verses 4 to 10, John was contrasting sin with righteousness. Sin with righteousness. Sin, verse 4, defines it as lawlessness. That's what sin is. It's breaking God's law. And if righteousness is the opposite of sin, if righteousness is the opposite of breaking God's law, then what is righteousness? Obeying God's law. Righteousness is to keep the law of God. And Scripture is clear that love is the motive and the attitude that produces that obedience. And therefore, love and righteousness cannot be separated. In Matthew chapter 22, when Jesus was asked, what is the great commandment in the law, what did He say? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. Then He went on and said, the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Jesus says the entirety of the Old Testament and its duty to us, our duty from the Old Testament, can be summed up in the word love. Love God and love your neighbor. The Apostle Paul said the same thing in Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. He put it this way Owe nothing, <clears throat> owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. 
For this you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, he's quoting there from the Ten Commandments, if there's any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. We get that. If you love your neighbor, you don't steal his belongings. If you love your neighbor, you won't kill him. If you love your neighbor, you won't covet his wife. You won't take his possessions. You won't hate him. Love then fulfills the entirety of God's moral law. Love is central all throughout Scripture. Love fulfills the law. Jesus taught us to love. The apostles taught us to love. Galatians 5 mentions it among the fruit of the Spirit. Love is one of the attitudes, one of the actions that the Spirit of God produces in the heart and lives of a true believer. In the book of James, James calls love the royal law according to the Scripture. The royal law according to the Scripture. Later in Galatians, he refers to it as the law of Christ. The law of Christ. God's law is summarized in those two commandments. Love God, love your neighbor. If you keep those, you keep the rest. And therefore, love and righteousness go together. And John's point throughout this letter is that love is an essential mark of a true believer. An essential mark of a true believer. Of course, if you look around at our culture, you don't see that. Today, our culture is marked by the absence of love, a lack of love. We can see that. You look at the statistics. Babies are murdered in their mother's wombs daily throughout our country and world. We see fights and quarrels and murder and devastation running rampant. That's become even more clear over the last year and a half, hasn't it, with COVID and all the other amazing things that have taken place in our culture. But clearly, our culture lacks love. Scripture says that men are naturally lovers of self, haters of God, hating and hateful towards one another. That's the way we are born. In fact, in Romans 3, Paul says that there's no fear of God before their eyes. Their feet are swift to shed blood. That is what naturally characterizes the human race outside of Christ. So people fundamentally have a love problem. People have a love problem. People really love themselves. That's what they love. I've told you before, consider what people say they love. I love my dog. I love my cat. I love my family. I love my house. I love my car. You notice a common word there? My. My, my. I love me. That's what we really love. People naturally love themselves. But that is not the case among true believers. That is not the case among those who belong to the kingdom of God. The mark of true believers is love. We're all called to love. And John says that is how you can distinguish between God's children and the devil's children. So our responsibility is to love. And in this text, John is going to define Christian love for us. It's going to define it. And that's important. Because if you ask people what love is, what does it look like, most people have no clue. Most people have no clue. But John is going to define Christian love for us by presenting four lessons on love. Four lessons on love. We'll look at the first two this morning, and we'll look at the last two next week. So first of all, lesson number one. Lesson number one. We see the antiquity of love. The antiquity of love. Look at verse 11. Verse 11. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Verse 11 begins with the word for. If you're not a 
you're not into grammar, you might overlook that word. <clears throat> but it's an important word. The word for there is the Greek word hati. It's also translated often as because. What John is really doing is linking this verse with the previous verse. John is saying, why is it that if you do not love, you're not of God? Because love is the message that God's people have had from the beginning. Love is an old message that we've had from the beginning. <clears throat> from the beginning of what? The beginning of what? Well, in one sense, from the beginning of creation. God's people have had the command to love from the beginning of creation. <clears throat> Romans 2 tells us that God's law is written on our hearts by creation, by birth. All people know the law of God. And since love is the fulfillment of the law, all of us are taught to love by creation. By creation. So love isn't new. It goes all the way back to the beginning. But also love we've had from the beginning of the Bible. The beginning of the Bible. In the very first portion of Scripture, what we call the Pentateuch or the Torah, the law of Moses, all the way back there we have this command to love. In Leviticus 19.18 we read this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's all the way back in the beginning of the Scripture. This isn't new. This isn't new. When the New Testament says, love your brother, love your neighbor, there's nothing new here. God's people have had this ever since the beginning of the Scripture. <clears throat> but we've also had this command to love ever since the beginning of the ministry of our Lord. Ever since the beginning of Gospel proclamation. Love was a central theme in the ministry of Christ. In fact, you could say that the entirety of Christ's life and ministry was one of love. We see Him feeding the hungry. We see Him healing the sick, raising the dead, preaching the Word of God. We see Him modeling love, teaching His disciples about love. And of course, we know the whole purpose for Him coming into the world was to give His life for salvation of sinners, and that is the greatest expression of love ever demonstrated. And so we've had love ever since the beginning of the ministry of Christ, ever since the beginning of apostolic proclamation. This is nothing new. It's nothing new. But also, this command to love we've had ever since the beginning of our own personal Christian lives. Ever since our conversion. Our Christian experience. You see, Romans chapter 5, verse 5 says that the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. At conversion, the Holy Spirit comes to reside in the believer's heart and in that indwelling of the Spirit, the love of God is poured out there as well. God's love dwells in our hearts. That is to say, we both possess God's love, and therefore we express God's love. We possess His love, and therefore we express His love. We have experienced the love of God, and if that is the case, we are taught by God to love. That's why in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9, Paul says, look, you don't, have anyone, you don't have any need for anyone to tell you to love because you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. You're taught by God. At conversion, God teaches the believer to love by giving him a new heart, pouring out His Holy Spirit within him, and raising him up to new life. So we are, through the new birth, through regeneration, taught to love. So love, then, is an old message. It's nothing new. God's people have always had it. We've had it since the beginning of creation the beginning of the Bible, the beginning of the ministry of Christ, and the beginning of our own Christian lives. Love is not new. 
And therefore, there's no excuse for anyone who claims to be a Christian to be characterized by the absence of love. There's no excuse for anyone who claims to be a Christian to be characterized by the absence of love. There's no way you can be a true believer and miss this message. There's no way. John says love is an old commandment. These believers at Asia Minor had heard that message. John had taught them the message. The other apostles had taught them the message. God had taught them the message through the new birth. There's no way they could have missed it. So John says, this is the message you've had from the beginning, that we should love one another. This is similar to what John said back in chapter 2, verse 7. We've already considered the test of love. There he says this, I'm not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you've had from the beginning. You've had this. Then he goes on to say, but I am in one sense writing a new commandment, because love, though it's an old commandment, yet it comes to Christians in a new, fresh way through the sacrifice of Christ and the example of Christ. But love itself is an old message. He then reiterates that again, 2 John verse 5, he says, Now I ask you, lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one which we've had from the beginning, that we love one another. This is old. This is an old message. God's people have had it ever since the beginning. There's no way a true Christian can miss this message. So this is our message. This is our message. We are to love one another. Now why does John need to emphasize this? Why does this become such a reoccurring motif in John's first letter? Well, the answer is because the false teachers taught the opposite. The false teachers taught the opposite. The false teachers had said they had attained this higher secret form of mystical knowledge that was only available to the spiritual elite. And this elitist attitude led them to be puffed up. And in their pride, they disregarded other professing Christians. They were indifferent to God's people. And John says, look, these heretics with their new truth, they're liars. Don't listen to them. Don't listen. They're wrong. I've told you before, new truth is never true. Truth is never new. Truth is old. Truth is ancient. Anyone comes and says he has new truth, it's just old error repackaged again under a new label. Truth is never new. Truth is ancient. Truth is old all the way back from the beginning. The seed of every truth is found in the Old Testament. The full revelation of every truth is found in the New Testament. We don't need anything new. When it comes to spiritual, redemptive, gospel, salvific truth, it's all contained for us in the Scripture, and it is ancient. So it's as if John is saying, look, you've had the truth. These people are wrong. You've had the truth from the beginning, and the truth is God's people have always been commanded to love one another. That's the message, that we should love one another. We should love people in general. We should love all people, even our enemies. Jesus says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, do good to those who do evil to you. But we should especially love the people of God, especially love believers. That's why in verse 14, John says we're to love the brethren. Here it's love one another. There, one another is defined specifically as believers, as those who belong to the covenant community of God. Galatians chapter 6 verse 10 really spells it out for us. There Paul says, So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. That's our priority. We love all people, but especially those who belong to God and who belong to the universal church. True Christians. 
And by the way, that love for one another is going to express itself in many ways. And we're going to talk about this as we move through the passage. But one way love for others expresses itself is by a desire to be with the people of God. To be with the people of God. That's why the local church is so important. That's why being faithful in the local church is so important. Because we love one another and we need one another. John says this is the message. That we love one another. Scripture constantly sounds that theme. It's all throughout the Bible. Jesus, John 13, says, I've given a new commandment to you that you love one another even as I have loved you. John 15, Jesus talks about loving and laying down your life for your friends all throughout Scripture, all throughout the New Testament. We have this command to love. It's ancient. So the first lesson that John wants us to know about love then is that it is an old message. He teaches us of the antiquity of love. But there's a second lesson here that John wants to teach us about love. Secondly, we see the opposite of love. The opposite of love in verses 12 and 13. Look at verse 12. Not as Cain. Not as Cain. Here's a contrast. Here's a contrast. We're to love one another, not as Cain. Now who is Cain? We know that Cain is the firstborn son of Adam and Eve. His story is recorded for us in Genesis chapter 4. In fact, this is the only allusion in this letter to any passage in the Old Testament specifically. The only allusion, the only direct reference to an Old Testament character is right here, and it is Cain as an example of the lack of love. So Cain was the firstborn son of Adam. He had a brother named Abel. We know that. What did he do to his brother? They didn't get along very well, did they? He killed him. He killed him. That's about the greatest expression of hatred you can have. That's as absent of a love that you can have. He killed his brother. In fact, the text here says he slew his brother. It's the word spadzo in the Greek. Uh, the word means to slaughter or to butcher. It refers to a violent, horrific death. In fact, the word was actually used in the Septuagint, that is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, with reference to animal sacrifices. They would take the animal, cut its throat, and pour out its blood. That's the word spadzo. So John says, Cain Svadzo, he slew, slaughtered, butchered his brother. So it brings vivid imagery of a, a horrific, bloody, painful death. That's what happens in Genesis chapter 4. How did he do it? Did he cut his throat? Maybe the word signifies that. The Jews have taught for a long time, and it's usually painted in modern literature, that he killed him with a rock. That's possible. But somehow, he killed and slaughtered his brother. It's almost as if once God rejected his sacrifice, MacArthur says it's as if he said, I'll give you a sacrifice then, God, and he sacrificed his own brother and cut the throat of his own brother. So this was a horrific death. And regardless of how he killed him, it was an expression of hatred, which is the opposite of love. So John says, don't be like Cain. Love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one, and slew his brother. Cain was of the evil one. He was of his father, the devil, a son of Satan, a son of hell. We know that because he killed his brother. His deeds testified against him. Remember back in John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus told those hypocritical Pharisees as they were plotting to kill him in their own hearts, He says, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father, He was a murderer from the beginning. 
The Pharisees hated Christ because they were of their father, the devil. They possessed his nature and they manifested that nature through murder, murderous desires. So it was with Cain, and so it is with anyone who does not love, but instead hates. They are of their father, the devil. John's been teaching us for a while now about the children of God and the children of the devil. He's been making this contrast. And so a shocking reality comes to our evangelical culture today. Not everyone is really a child of God. Not everyone really belongs to God. But he's been contrasting God's children with the devil's children. And essentially what John wants us to know is this. Whoever your spiritual father is, you possess that one's nature. Whoever your spiritual father is, you possess that one's nature. Just as any true child possesses the genes of his parents and thus bears the likeness of his parents, so all those who are God's children have his nature and bear his likeness. Those who belong to Satan have his nature and they manifest that through hatred and murder. And that's the way it was with Cain. He was of his father, the devil. He killed him. And John asked, for what reason did he slay him? Why did he do this? Why did he kill his brother? What would drive someone to kill his own flesh and blood? Verse 12 answers, because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Cain killed Abel because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Now what does that even mean? How was Cain's deeds evil? What does that mean? Let's go to Genesis chapter 4 for a moment. Genesis chapter 4. Don't lose your place in 1 John 3. We'll be right back there. But Genesis 4, and let's consider this first murder and see if we can figure out what motivated Cain to kill his brother. Genesis 4. The story really begins in chapters 1 and 2. God creates a perfect world that included creating man in his own image. Humans were the pinnacle of creation. Man was the most special creature of God, made to be his representative in the earth. And Adam and Eve had perfect fellowship with God in the garden. But then, under the temptation of Satan, Adam willingly chooses to rebel against his creator. And the result of Adam's sin is that every one of his descendants would be born with a corrupt nature, would be born in sin. And that becomes immediately obvious in the story of Cain and Abel here in chapter 4. So Genesis 4, starting in verse 1. Now the man had relations with his wife, Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Again she gave birth to his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. So God had regard for Abel's offering, but He did not have regard for Cain's offering. That is to say, God accepted Abel's offering, but He rejected Cain's offering. Now why did He do that? Why did God reject Cain's offering and accept Abel's? Well, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4 gives us a little insight. Let me read that. By faith, 
Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous by faith. Abel was righteous by faith, and it was because his offering was offered up in faith that God accepted that offering. Which implies then that Cain's offering was not offered in faith. Cain's offering was offered in unbelief. So that's definitely the case. It's definitely a heart issue, an issue of motive, an issue of faith. Abel's sacrifice was an expression of genuine worship, genuine faith. It was, as Jesus says in John 4.24, worship in spirit and truth. Cain's, on the other hand, was not offered in true faith and genuine worship. And this is a shocking thing here. Have you ever thought of this? Cain was not an atheist. Cain was not a pagan. Cain was a professing believer in the true God. Cain even offered sacrifices to the true God. And yet he was of his father, the devil. How many people fill church pews on Sunday mornings? They go through the motions. They worship the true God. They believe the true gospel. They sing all the right songs. And yet they're of their father, the devil. You see, friends, God abhors sacrifice and worship that is offered to Him from a heart of unbelief. He abhors it. Throughout the Old Testament, He says, look, stop offering your sacrifices to Me. They stink. It's a stench in My nostrils. That's what God said to Israel. That's what He said to Israel. The issue then is this. If you live all week like the devil, if you love like the devil or hate like the devil, and then come to church on Sunday and seek to worship God, your worship is unacceptable. Your worship is unacceptable. What a sober reality. So that's you this morning. Come to Christ for real. Come to Him in faith. And then your worship will be acceptable through Christ. But that's what happened with Cain. He offered his worship without genuine faith. There may be more to this as well. Some scholars have said that it goes beyond the heart motive, but it also goes to the action. It goes to what, what was offered. What was offered? What is it that Cain offered? Look at the end of verse 3. It says, Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. So he brought fruit. Now what did Abel bring? Verse 4. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. So Abel brought an animal sacrifice. Cain brings fruit. Abel brings an animal sacrifice. Now why is that so significant? What makes that significant? Well, it's possible that Cain's offering was in direct disobedience to God's commandment, God's requirement. You see, we know that later on in the Old Testament, as God establishes the nation of Israel, plots them in the land, He then establishes a sacrificial system that involved the cutting of the throats of animal sacrifices offered up to God, which became a graphic symbol of atonement. They pointed to the final sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ who would die a bloody, horrific death, who would be slaughtered on the cross by God for the salvation of His people. And so there was this clear pattern of an animal sacrifice. And although there's no explicit command in Genesis 4 for an animal sacrifice, God had already established that pattern. Go to chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 21. Genesis 3, 21. Adam and Eve sin. They clothe themselves with fig leaves. Verse 21 says, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Where did He get the garments of skin from? 
from a sacrifice. The first sacrifice is offered by God so that He can make atonement for, symbolically, for Adam and Eve and clothe them, which points to Christ's sacrifice. He dies, we're robed in the garments of His righteousness. There's the Gospel, Genesis 3.21. So God had already established this pattern of animal sacrifice. And so it's possible that Cain's sacrifice is wrong even in the substance of it. Not only in the motive, but even in the substance. Abel brings an offering of an animal to symbolize future atonement, and he offers it up in faith, looking forward to that final atonement that would be made by the Messiah. But Cain, on the other hand, did not. And therefore, God rejected his offering. Rejected his offering. So that's what happens. God rejected an offering. And what happens? Cain gets angry. Verse 8, Genesis 4, verse 8 says, Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Killed him. That sounds very uh, not very graphic. He just killed him. But we know this was a bad, bloody, horrific death. Cain said, I'll offer up a sacrifice. Alright, God, here you go. And he kills his brother. So back to 1 John 3 now. John's going to apply all of this to us. He's going to make a personal application. His brother's angry. His worship was not accepted. His deeds were evil. His brothers were righteous. So he kills him. Back to 1 John 3. John says, Love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Then verse 13 adds, Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. Don't be shocked. Don't be stunned. Don't be blown away if the world hates you. This is how it's always been. Going all the way back to Cain and Abel. Going all the way back to the beginning. The unrighteous have always hated the righteous. The world has always hated the church. Ungodly people have always hated godly people. That's the way it's always been. In fact, God Himself affirmed that ongoing tension in Genesis 3.15. There, He promises that He would put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. This constant friction between those who belong to God and those who belong to their father, the devil. So don't be shocked if the world hates you. That's the way it always is. Why do they hate us? Why do they hate us? Because our righteous deeds stand in stark contrast with their evil deeds. Our righteous deeds stand in stark contrast with their evil deeds. Why is it when we go to the abortion clinic on Wednesdays and we're there to plead with women, to proclaim the Gospel, to express the love of Christ, why do we get threats? Why why do they get in our faces and threaten to hurt us and curse us and flip us off? Why do they do that? Because our righteous deeds expose the unfruitful deeds of darkness being committed there. That's why. That's why. Our Our righteous deeds torment them and their sin. It exposes their sin. It angers them. And so like Cain, like their father Satan, they respond in persecution of the people of God. But that's the way it is. The deeds of the righteous expose and rebuke unfruitful deeds of darkness. That is exactly why they killed Jesus. Did you know that? I told you before, you ever heard someone say, be like Jesus and they'll love you? Yeah, that worked, didn't it? They loved Jesus. They killed Him. They killed Him. John 7.7 says, this is Jesus, the world hates Me 
because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. The world did not hate Christ because He went around telling everybody God loves them. The world hated Christ because He exposed their hypocrisy and their sin. And that angered them, and so they killed Him. And as believers, we're called to be like our Savior. We're called to do the same thing. Ephesians 5 tells us, Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. Instead, rather expose them. We're to expose sin. We're to live righteously and preach righteousness. And as we do that, Philippians 2.15 says, We shine as lights in the world. We shine as lights in the world. The light of righteousness shines on their sin, exposes it, and it either converts them or it angers them. In fact, in church history, it's been commonly said, preach in such a way that either your hearers hate you or they get converted. They either hate you or they get converted. So Jesus says, don't be shocked. John says, don't be shocked if the world hates you. Expect it. Scripture constantly tells us to expect the world's animosity. John 15, Jesus says, look, if the world hates you, there's no at first hated me. Hated me first. He goes on and says, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. That's the issue. This is why many professing Christians aren't persecuted at all. They belong to the world. If you profess Christ, and you go to church, and you have the Christian religion, but you don't expose sin, and you, don't, and you condone sin, and you accept sin, well, the world's not going to hate you then. You repackage Christianity and you soften the blow and you make it look appealing to sinful people because it offers them what they want already. Well, they're not going to hate you then. But if you tell them the truth because you love them and you warn them and you expose sin and you live righteously, the world will hate you. So we should be expected to be hated by the world. They don't know God. They don't know Christ. Back in verse 1, John says they don't know us. We possess His nature. We manifest that nature in righteousness and love. And so the world doesn't get it. And they persecute us. Peter says, look, the world, they're angered at you. They're shocked when you don't run any longer in the excessive dissipation that they run in. You ever lost friends because you became a Christian? You lost friends because you don't do the evil things that you once did? That's what happens. Those who belong to Christ are hated by the world. We should expect that. Acts 14.22 Paul preaches the Gospel. A bunch of new converts plants a church. And notice, he doesn't tell them, you can have your best life now. Here's what he tells them. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Becoming a Christian doesn't take your problems away. You know what becoming a Christian does? It adds to your problems. The world's going to hate you. You're going to suffer. You're going to fight sin. And you're going to die just like everybody else. The good news is you die with Christ and you go to be with Him in glory. But through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. That's why in 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul said, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's a, that's a matter of fact statement. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So if you're not being persecuted, perhaps it's because you're not living godly in Christ Jesus. Because if you are living godly in Christ Jesus, to some degree, you will be persecuted. Even if it's just someone laughing at you for your faith, to some degree, you will be persecuted. We're like Christ. We manifest His righteousness and love. We expose sin. And when we do, it angers them. One author says this, Godlessness is disturbed by the condemning presence of righteousness in its midst. 
and it would remove the cause of its discomfort if it could. It's exactly right. Godlessness is disturbed by the condemning presence of righteousness. Our deeds testify against them. Just as Abel's testified against Cain, and if they have the opportunity, often they will eliminate that cause of discomfort. So John says, don't be shocked. The world hates you. That's how it's always been, and it always will be until Christ returns. Satan's children hate and murder the children of God. Satan was a murderer from the beginning, and all who love death, all who love murder, are of him. They belong to him. That is why we are so sorrowful for those who support abortion. Anyone who loves abortion is of their father, the devil. That's the way it is. If you love death and murder of any kind, you do not belong to God. So Cain was of his father, the devil, and he murdered his brother. But there's more to hatred than murder. That's the obvious, uh, gross, highest expression of hatred. But hatred is expressed in many other ways. In fact, in Matthew 5, Jesus says, if you call your brother a fool, you're guilty enough to go to hell. If you call your brother a fool, you're guilty enough to go to hell. In verse 15 of chapter 3 here, John says, everyone who hates his brother is already a murderer. You've already committed murder. You can commit murder in the heart without committing the deed itself. You ever been angry enough in traffic Someone cuts you off and you insult them and call them a filthy name. You've already committed murder in your heart. Jesus would say. That's the mark of the ungodly. Verse 17 implies that indifference to the needs of others is also an expression of hatred. Hatred. Hatred marks the world. It marks ungodly people. It should never characterize those who belong to God. It should never characterize those who have been changed and transformed by the power of the Gospel. Our love life is the evidence of our salvation. So the opposite of love then is hatred, exemplified in Cain, often expressed in murder and characteristic of the world. The opposite of love is hatred. And John is saying, don't be like Cain. Don't follow his example. Don't hate. Instead, love one another, and so prove yourself to belong to God. We belong to God, and therefore we must love. So that's the opposite. There's a third lesson that John gives us. Not only do we see the antiquity of love, it's an old message. Not only do we see the opposite of love, hatred. But thirdly, we see the assurance of love. The assurance of love. And we don't really have time this morning to consider this in detail, but I'll at least introduce it to you. Look at verse 14. We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. How do you know you're a Christian? How do you know you're a child of God? How do you know you're headed for heaven? Because you love other people. Because you love. And anyone who does not love remains in a state of spiritual death. So we should examine ourselves this morning. How's your love life? How's your love life? Brothers and sisters, is your life marked by love or is it marked by hatred? By indifference to people, selfishness, self-centeredness, and even murder? What is it that characterizes your life? Love is an old message. 
Its opposite is hatred, and it provides assurance for those whose lives are marked by it. That's what makes love so important. That's what makes it so important. God is love. 1 John 4 later says, all those who love are born of God because love comes from God. That's what makes it so important. And we'll continue to consider that next week as we work through the rest of this passage. But for now, brothers and sisters, examine yourself. Are you a believer? You see, if you're not a Christian, that's where it starts. You can never love biblically unless you've experienced God's saving love in Christ. But for those who have seen His glory and have experienced the majesty of His divine love, we are enabled out of that love to love others. So that's where it begins. If you're not a Christian, come to Christ, experience God's love, and then you'll be able to extend that love. But if you are a believer, continue to love. Let us do what Paul tells the Thessalonians. Excel still more and more. None of us can love enough. None of us can out-love God. We should love one another for the good of the church, for our own assurance, and for the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful that we have a Savior who loves us, a Savior who gave Himself up for us, that He might rescue us from this present evil age. We're thankful that even though the world hates us, we know that it hated our Lord first. And we know that in Him we have overcome the world. And we pray now that as we live in this world, we would be lights in a dark place. That we would live righteously, that we would proclaim righteousness with our mouths and with our lives. And as we do, people would hopefully be converted, but we know some are going to despise us and reject us and hate us. But when that happens, we know Jesus says we should rejoice because the Spirit of God and of glory rest upon us. Blessed are you when people say evil things of you for Christ's sake. We know that is a blessed state to be in because we're in good company. Satan's children have always killed God's children, always hated God's children, all the way back to the prophets and all the way back to Cain and Abel, all the way back to Jesus, even the apostles. We know 11 of them were um, martyred, put to death for their faith. We know that continues to happen even all over the world. We pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters. We think of our brother in uh, Canada who's recently been incarcerated for opening his church and preaching the Gospel. That's exactly what happens. The world hates the true church. We pray for that brother, for his strength and comfort. We pray that he would have an increased apprehension of the love of Christ for him and extend that love to his enemies and persecutors. And we pray for persecuted church all over the world. Soon, Lord, maybe we'll be the ones persecuted. That day seems to be drawing nearer and nearer. And I pray that You would give us all grace to stand firm when it happens. And help us to show love to those around us. That we might be like our Father in Heaven. And bring glory to Your name. We pray these things to that end. Amen.